Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be talking to Patrick Ray all about the flood that did come, his recent release through Avery Hill. But first, here's some information on some other comics podcasts you may enjoy. Oh, we've had an email asking if we wanted to do an advert for the Avery Hill podcast. Oh, that's nice of them. Does that mean we can't swear? Yeah, pretty much. So, no words like or and definitely no Oh, Gabriel Comics. Yeah, they're nice. Uh, we're the Awesome Comics Pod. You can find us at awesomecomics.podbean.com or on iTunes and as the Awesome Comics Podcast and buy a copy of our Awesome Comics Anthology at www.awesomecomicpod.bigcartel.com Oh, that was very professional, wasn't it? I knew that would go right. Oh, Jesus. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore... Of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, it's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Need a podcast all about comics topics, reviews, and just general chit chat? Then join David Robertson, Fernando Pons, Mike Sadakat, Giuseppe Lambertino, and me, Tom Stewart, at That Comic Smell. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes, and on Twitter and Instagram at That Comic Smell. Pull up a chair and join us. The Flood That Did Come is just one of a number of great new books we've released this year. Head over to averyhillpublishing.com for information on all of them. They're also available to order from all good book and comic shops, and digital editions of our books can be found on Gumroad. And now, let's chat to Patrick. Hello, Patrick. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. Yes, thank you. Just looking at your website, it looks like you were reading comics at a very young age. Uh, Yeah, I mean, as a child, I suppose I picked up the sort of usual ones like the Beano and that sort of thing, then sort of graduated onto Batman's Superman and um, then later on 2000 AD. And I used to like the, um, I used to like the Eagle in the uh, back when I was a kid when they, not first time around, but when they, I was around when they, um, you know, um, relaunched it in the eighties actually. So I used to enjoy reading that as well. And it seems like from looking at your website, there's some, some really good, early efforts where you as a kid are just trying to embrace that and do some nice sort of sci-fi influenced stories. Yeah, I, I started messing around making comics, I suppose, when I was about 10 or 11. And then, like a lot of people, I guess the first things you do, they're kind of uh, trying to emulate stuff that was um, that I was reading, like, you know, as I say, like 2000 AD and that, that sort of thing. I think I did a Doctor Who one that actually was done in about I think it was done in about 1990 and it was um actually ran for about I think it had an annual and it ran for about 12 stories actually where it was it was sort of my own um it was I think it was my it was basically it was my own um in incarnation of Doctor because it was in 1990 so it was basically um imagining because it was been taken off the tv at that time so kind of imagining what it would go on to, I suppose. I guess I just wanted to watch it so much of the time as a fan of it that I just basically decided to make it up myself. But yeah, so 
things like that. Um, I had one about, then I had some other ones, of course, that were just sort of stories that I'd made up. I had a very long one about sort of um, a small town that's invaded by flesh eating worms that um, managed to land me a pretty dismal mark on my GCSEs when I was a. <laughs> when it was for art, my art GCSE, where that one didn't go down too well, but uh, yeah, there's a great panel from on one of the, the pages from that on your website where one of the worms starts eating a chainsaw because he's angry because the chainsaws cut him in half. That's right, they, they cut a giant worm in half. When they, yes. I don't want to give any spoilers oh, away for, yeah. for folks here, <laughs> but uh, um, they, they, they then there's a giant worm at the heart of the worm problem. And then when they saw into the worm, thinking they're going to get rid of it, it's got lots of small worms in it, which are the real thing that's causing the problem. This town is the small flesh-eating worms. Only when they get to the heart of the matter do they realise that there's a giant worm for them to contend with. There you go. I think on, on, on your site you say you've got you an E in uh, your GCSE, but I'd like to retrospectively award you an A from me personally. <laughs> it, it, did get, it, it did get me neat. I mean, the, um, yeah, my art teacher was, I mean, back, th this was a very long time, this was, would have been about very early 90s. And of course, I mean, back then, anything to do with comics was pretty much frowned upon in education circles. I don't know if it is now, but I, I remember when I started my art foundation, I, I think I probably brought that and a couple of other things of that style along and there it was very much a sort of blanket reaction that we wouldn't be doing anything <laughs> along those lines so it wasn't I don't know if I don't know if that's opened up a little bit now but it's it wasn't something that was it was still seen as fairly sort of degenerate and not something to be doing I suppose but yeah I mean my to prefer to my art teacher he was he was a nice enough um I barely sort of he was one of these people that was just sort of propped up at the front of the class, really, just coasting <laughs> till retirement. He he used to bring his um, acoustic guitar to lessons, and there was a bunch of kids in the class that he found out were learning the guitar, and he used to spend every art lesson showing these kids chords on the guitar, so I think his calling was perhaps for music, and he barely recognised any of the students, to be fair. But um, anyway, I, I probably deserved that year anyway, to be honest. In there. <laughs> I didn't do anything else that fitted the criteria of what we needed that year, so uh, there we go. But uh, but I've still got the comic, though, so yeah, and the E. Um, yeah. <laughs> But it, as you've you've alluded to there, it didn't stop you uh, stop your interest in art, and you you went on to to study it at various institutions. Yeah, I used to do it, do it at school, as I say. With the, I mean, I didn't excel particularly academically in any areas at school, even in the art as we've just discussed. I, I think I used to sort of, I used to very much do it as something that I could um, do outside of school and just be sort of. Um, something I could sort of teach myself and be, you know, work out on my own terms, I suppose, as a sort of break from sort of education failure, I suppose. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I was always doing it in my spare time. And um, even when I went to art college, actually, I, I still found myself concentrating on projects that were not part of the um, educational uh, syllabus sort of thing which you know looking with with hindsight you sort of think of looking back you know could maybe channel some of that into the um into the actual courses i was doing because it it's certain that the work i did on, on the actual courses i think 
probably suffered as a result of that. But um, yeah, I've, uh, that was um, again a kind of finding other projects to escape into that weren't part of the sort of structure of what I was supposed to be doing, I suppose. But yeah. There's also, I think, a, a grand tradition of people at art colleges in England essentially discovering other disciplines, particularly music, which was something that you started to, to work in as well. So, uh, you know, I know you mean about, you know, with hindsight, you could have focused more on the, on the course. But I, I do think as well, a big part of that experience is, is that sort of freedom to absolutely yeah. see what's out there. Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was back when I—I I mean, it's quite a, quite a while ago that I went to uh, art college now. But it was—I was, I was at, um, a college called uh, Dartington College of Art, which was the a very experimental sort of approach in a sort of very sort of idealistic kind of '60s art college kind of thing, really. And I was one of the last years to get grants so we were really just left to do whatever we wanted really most of the time which was great and there were lots of um, interesting and very creative and eccentric people on the course so yeah one did branch out into other areas and ended up doing lots of sort of creative projects and things that weren't necessarily related to the course I think often you go if you've given that opportunity to just really just sort of faff around in an artistic uh, environment for a few years though often people that are um if you're going to carry on doing art you you will carry on doing it sort of thing and it just in in for many people me me me, me i would say anyway that I, it gave me a sort of a, a sort of springboard to, to to do to work on my own terms afterwards i suppose i mean i yeah sort of came out of the experience thinking i hadn't done quite as much as i wanted to do and that I suppose that kind of gave me a sort of, you know, you sort of have that realisation afterwards, well, I've got this drive toward making art and creative projects. Haven't maybe done it in when I had this chance here to do it quite as much as I think I should have. But then you realise that actually you're, you know, the offshoot is you realise you actually, well, that means I'm kind of committed to doing this. And so I probably went, started making... Uh, started going in some sort of vague direction i suppose after immediately after leaving leaving i suppose but we yeah we did do having said that we did do quite a bit on the course as well so it wasn't it wasn't just uh sitting around or anything but uh not that there's anything wrong with that either, but, yeah. <laughs> and as you say as well it's a great space to meet potential collaborators and, and people to sort of you know spark off of um, and, and it looked again, just looking at the, your sort of creative history, you did involve yourself, obviously music being a, a, a big one, but film as well, and a lot of, uh, of other sort of visual art as well. So I do think, uh, you know, I, I wonder how you feel that, you know, having that sort of eclectic, different sort of multidisciplinary take helps you to sort of inspire different parts in, in different projects. I think so. Yeah, I mean, with I mean, I made a, did make a few sort of films and videos and that sort of thing. I remember when I first ever made um, attempted to make comics when I was a kid. At that time, I really wanted to be able to make um, films, but I just couldn't afford the um, video equipment or whatever. So I, I saw it as a sort of substitute um, for doing that, I suppose. And then that's, but then I, you know, I became sort of quite taken with the idea that it was quite good that you could make a multi-million dollar dollar sort of 
sci-fi epic for the price of a you know pencil and some ideas and the, and um, a few sheets of paper. So I kind of and plus the video one I did actually make some sort of films and videos that were pretty rubbish to be honest. And uh, and I you know also realised that I prefer artistic projects where I I where I don't need to leave the house much while doing them. So but uh, um, but yeah but yeah multidisciplinary. Um, yeah, that's true. I think. I mean, it's um, as a, as a, as a, I I don't I, I I like sort of comics as a sort of medium for um, telling stories, and it's one that I've always come back to um, throughout my um, life. I've kind of gone away from it a few times, but it's one that I I just I, I like the medium, and then you know I I don't yeah I suppose I just think of myself as a artist, I suppose, rather than a sort of specifically a sort of um comic artist i mean the book i've done with avery hill the flood that did come book is as you've seen it's got a kind of a sort of very stark sort of minimal sort of almost sort of conceptual sort of look to it i suppose so that that i think some of that look and some of the um certainly visually is fed into it by um a kind of slightly more probably some of the kind of avant-garde kind of art college kind of sensibilities, but you know, then you've got other bits to do with the telling of the story, which are written in a sort of, a sort of mixture of a sort of famous five Enid Blyton type storytelling mixed with things that relate to sort of public information films and that sort of thing. So there's a kind of, yeah, like some of the influences, there's a similar kind of disjunction working there that, Hopefully it works in some sort of coherent way in the end, though. I like the idea as well that when you wanted to sort of come back to comics as a sort of bridge to help yourself learn a bit more about or, or remind yourself how the medium worked, you, you went back to Doctor Who uh, as, <laughs> yeah, as, as, a, did, as a concept. Yeah. yeah, that was just, I just did a sort of spoofy uh, version of the one that I'd done as a in about nine, in 1990 um and you know it, it was one that was just ran off a few copies of it at the time it was i don't know if you're uh, a doctor who fan yourself but it was um if people if people were around into it back in late 80s early 90s it was deeply unfashionable to like it at school sort of thing and all that sort of thing so it was, i did run off a few copies of it but um yeah it didn't I, it didn't make me the cool kid in the school or anything <laughs> like that at the time but but it was but yeah so it was just, it just ran off a few copies of it. but but yeah i did i did just sort of i was sort of getting back into it a little bit i suppose but um into the program itself i suppose but um so yeah i just i i just yeah like you say i just took something that was kind of familiar and made a kind of spoofy version of a some work I'd done years ago again but it was yeah it was mainly just a bit of fun and just to get myself going again with it really yeah it, it was just for the re mainly read by my uh, sister that one but yeah <laughs> the captive audience yeah <laughs> in terms of sort of like returning to comics was that provoked anyway I know you, you work in uh, foils uh, yeah bookstore. so I wondered if if working there had sort of exposed you to comics that you, you know, and different kinds of comics to what you remember as a kid, and that had sort of sparked your interest in, in getting back into to the medium. It was a while after I started working there that I, I um, started making them again, I suppose. But the, um, we have, yeah, I mean, I from working in a 
bookshop i'm kind of you know you one good thing about you kind of always on the pulse of the latest stuff that's coming out so so there's definitely that sort of um sense of uh, seeing what's out there and what different publishers uh, are doing and and that sort of thing um it was kind of um i was doing a lot of one-off pictures like paintings and drawings that some of them were kind of fun but they don't didn't really make a great deal of sense a lot of them they're just slightly surreal but colorful pictures so it was it probably was partly influenced by yeah being i mean i'm seeing a lot of different types of work um again in that kind of context of working directly with them but yeah it was as yeah that combined with just thinking it kind of makes more sense to try and make these i mean a lot of my drawings that i've done separate from that are kind of figurative to give these people some more life and also just to kind of try and be a I try and be sort of um productive and to the point of being a prolific I suppose and if you do well quite like about doing a comic as well as that once you've got the idea and the spark to do it, it you you end up producing a lot of different drawings for in the you know obviously under the umbrella of one project but it's a good spark to get you to into a, you know into a sort of creative um, mode and a, being very productive with it in my head i'd sort of assumed that you would have seen the avery hill stuff at foils and that would have been how you yes, sort of learned have, about actually, them yes expose them yes. But in, in the dedication for the book you mention uh, Jen Thompson, who sort of put you in mind of, of Avery Hill for the project. Was that sort of her, her sort of looking at the artwork and going, this would be something that Avery Hill could be interested in having a look at? I mean, I, I did know their work and I, I liked um, the stuff I, I'd seen that we, like we obviously there's the Tilly Walden ones and I, uh, that we have in, in the shop and we've got, we've got pretty much all of them, I, I think, in the last... Um, year or two certainly so i did i was aware of the stuff and i liked the publisher but she i actually used to work with uh jenny in the shop actually a few years ago and uh, so so but yeah i was just literally um and she, obviously she works with avery hill in her job as well but she she just sort of in passing mentioned that she thought it might be the sort of thing that they were into in, ter in terms of this particular story i guess it kind of taps into i guess it's probably in line with some of the more experimental sort of um books that they've done i mean she didn't actually she hadn't, she hadn't actually seen the um story that i submitted the flood that did come story to be fair she hadn't actually seen it so so and it's actually quite different in style to all the things i've done but um even so in relation to things i'd already done she thought it might be in step with um what they were doing and i, I i'd actually done the story the flood that did come um might have been as it was either 2017 or 2018 i think it was it might have been 20 most of it was done i think in 2017 and i had a load of stuff happening in 2018 i just didn't really get around to doing anything with it and well I, I don't know it just it just put a spark in my mind when she mentioned them i like it and i started flicking through it again one day and i thought you know this is actually this has got something to it and i i, I thought it was well yeah i thought it was, it was not bad really so i, I just um yeah, so I just then I just thought, yeah, let's give it. And I, and I had seen their stuff, so I, I, when I looked at some of their through their stuff again, I thought, yeah, you know, maybe they might like this actually. So, and that was in this instance the first people I sent it to. So, so that was that was good. But uh, yeah, that doesn't usually happen for me. <laughs> the first person <laughs> I send it to, me, I, I hate them to add. Yeah, I think one of the things, one of the sort of strengths of the Avery Hill list is the fact that there isn't really any sort of defining 
characteristic in terms of the, the visual style or the tone. But and I always used to say this at, at when, when I worked at Gosh and I'd, I'd put together the books on a display. I'd always say to Ricky, it's funny how different all your books are, but they seem to sit together really nicely. There's something about them where it, there's some sort of undercurrent that sort of makes these quite sort of disparate looking books fit together, which I think is, um, uh, you know, a tribute to, to Ricky and Dave's editorial eye. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's good work with it. I mean, there's a, I think there's a sort of couple of, maybe a couple of different kind of strands of, that run through the work they published. There's some of it that's slightly more overtly kind of experimental that, as I say, my one probably falls, falls into, um, you know, perhaps, you know, more so in the um, visual um, side of it with this particular one. And then, um, yeah, then there are others that I think probably slightly more conventional in terms of the way they look but again not always um conventional in terms of the um narrative so i think there's i think it's possible that all of that stuff has a sort of um yeah there's kind of two strands that i think some of them are perhaps have a sort of more um personal sort of autobiographical thing running through some of them whereas some of them are again as i say that word again slightly more experimental but it's but as you say they are quite varied really and it's 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 very difficult for publishers to have that variation and still yet have a sort of unified sort of identity that people recognize and I, I think you're right that they um have achieved that as you say I think it would be fair to bracket the flood that did come amongst the more experimental side of, of comics and again this is one of the things I love about comics as a medium you know people have this this when you say comics they people have a very specific visual idea in their mind but realistically, it's, you know, words and images working together to share information or tell a story. And The Flood That Did Come a great example of that being done in a very unique manner. I was going to suggest that uh, it, the sort of project reminded me of the work of Gareth Brooks. So he did uh, The Black Project a few years ago, which was uh, a book that was basically embroidered together oh, and printed. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, uh, really, really nice stuff. And and Gareth followed up with um, a book called A Thousand Coloured Castles, which was done using sort of scratchboard crayon work, you know, with the sort of, uh, where you, you, you scratch away the layers of uh, the crayon to sort of make the image. And I think Gareth's latest project involves him burning the paper to make the image i can't remember exactly what it oh, right but basically it um i have uh, seen this one yeah yeah the the, the flood did come reminded me of that in the as i've said to gareth before it seems like it, it's a very interesting artistic endeavor i think in that it's sort of it's a very difficult way to make a comic essentially isn't it uh, uh, but but the results are fascinating because it is uh so different obviously you know with the flood that did come what you've used essentially is sort of woodblock stencils to replicate a lot of the same characters and, and images, but by recontextualizing them, you, you sort of manage to tell the story and it looks visually so compelling because it is unlike anything else on the shelf. I mean, ironically, when I first started making it with the idea of the wood 
block. So I, I think in my, I, mean, I didn't make it for this. I didn't do it in this style for this reason. But I, you know, like many creative projects that one begins, I suppose I, you think, oh, this is going to be quite straightforward. I'll have this done really quickly, and it's um, uh, and and it's going to be straightforward to do sort of thing. Which I mean, I can't remember. It took me about. Because I wrote the story, as in the, all the text down, then I had the, to fit these um, wood blocks, which had been chucked out from an old school. And then it was kind of, uh, one of the ideas behind it was just to try and give myself some discipline and think about, you know, the panel, what was going on in the space by you stripping it back to this really sort of brutally sort of... Um, simple um, style but of course once I started doing it, it became much more sort of um, fiddly sort of process than I than I initially um, thought it would be because like you say a lot of images in it are repeated but as it goes on I, you know to make the the image still interesting I had to I found it was required to change them around quite a bit so it became as much as stamping with little bits of drawing it became a very it became a very much a sort of collaging sort of exercise once I became got going as well so I you know spent hours finally decapitating these children to stick them back together for the uh, for the next panel sort of thing so obviously visually remarkable in, in terms of visual yeah and the, the, the story as well I mean you know from, from what you're saying about the, the timeline of you putting it together it, it, it it's ended up being probably more timely than you ever would have imagined in that we're sort of talking about it in the middle of an international crisis that has sort of uh, rocked Britain and, and the story is essentially about floods across Britain that are cataclysmic essentially aren't they? Yeah I mean we've obviously you're referring to the sort of pandemic to some degree there but just to, to, but does bit well to a lot of degree but but, um, but the um bit just before that we did have in england i think in january february we did have massive floods here as well but i mean relating it to the sort of issues that the pandemic ra raises around the environment it's i think it demonstrates on some level that you know despite our best intentions or worst intentions in some cases that nature is something that can't be sort of bought or bargained with and it does does what it's going to do and in terms of the specific narrative of the story without giving too much away but to me it, it felt like you were touching on uh, a lot of ideas around you know for one of a better word gentrification and redevelopment and and what drives these things and who stands to to lose and profit by them which are sort of you know always unfortunately uh timely things yeah i mean the story just for people who haven't read it sort of roughly is that the is that there is a county that's been entirely flooded apart from a small number of villages and hamlets and the central characters of two children who live who are looking to live in one of the villages that hasn't been flooded which then what then ensues is a sort of battle of wills between a nearby village who claim land rights on that one. So it kind of has lots of stuff to do with the, the environmental stuff, plus different types of um, progress, whether it be through, you know, land redevelopment, that kind of thing, or gentrification, whatever you, ways you could look at it in that sort of way. And that it's, it's not a sort of, I don't think the story is sort of polemical in that sense. It really just, it really 
presents this um, situation the character is in in a kind of slightly humorous way as well. And then trying to say it doesn't have a um, particular political message. It's just a kind of, um, it's a kind of portrait or a sketch of a sort of conflicted society, I suppose. Um, I suppose it allows or gives a space for readers to make their own sort of um, conclusions about its view on the kind of, society that we um it's sort of very specifically uh drawn in a sort of english society in this one i suppose but but yeah i guess it yeah leaves like to think it leaves a bit of space for the reader to draw their own sort of ideas and conclusions about those things based on the kind of just based on just sort of following the characters through and their relationships with each other i suppose I think also, uh, uh, as you mentioned as well, there's a, uh, a, a lot of humour, a lot of uh, fun to be had in there as well. In the, you know, you've obviously very deliberately designed it in a way that echoes, well, for, uh, as you've said yourself, sort of Lady, uh, sort of Enid Blyton public information films that quite brought to mind for me, sort of Lady Bird books. There's that very sort yeah. of that that idea of you know traditional England, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I suppose there's a kind of, um, that just sort of kicked, once I started writing, I just found, I must have, I must have just read, read, I mean, I did read quite a few famous five books when I was a kid, and that must have just started to gradually started to seep into the um, story, that very clipped kind of uh, English way of uh, speaking that started to, uh, you could see it was kind of adding something to it as well. I mean, it's... Um, it's kind of in the story of very English sort of cosy catastrophes and stuff like that as well. Like um, the black cloud is one that springs to mind. That was more of a sort of science fiction sort of thing. But then there's even, I mean, I was, I was watching a lot of things around about the time that I was doing it as well, like the changes and the survivors and things like that. These kind of, that were done in the seventies, these kind of dystopian sort of dramas and the changes was aimed at, I think it was, it was part of children's program at the time, but it's very, dark and so some of those sort of thing you know like things like that and red shift and things like that and those those kind of ideas started to seep into it as well like you know in terms of a sort of very english kind of post-apocalyptic sort of dystopian um, things i mean it's most dystopian stories are sort of satirical aren't they really and kind of humorous in in some way as well so it's kind of yeah inevitable that would kind of be there as well i guess in in that sense i mean that some of those things with the sort of the visual styles or well, a few people said that about the ladybird books and that kind of thing uh, that there's a kind of language with all that kind of thing that's very sort of cozy and sort of retro i suppose and nostalgic so it's kind of also kind of utilizing the sort of language of sort of nostalgia and retro sort of looks to kind of um, quite cozy sort of familiar sort of things to lead people into a story that was a bit that was you know, darker and not really so cosy once you're under the surface, but it, it also creates a, it's a sort of familiar aesthetic, I suppose, to get people into that, I suppose. I think I spotted an Easter egg in the book, and I wondered if I could just check with you uh, to confirm or deny that. Right. <laughs> so the, the name of the elevated village that becomes a sort of contentious point in The Flood of Come is Pennyworth. Yeah. Would that be the same Pennyworth that Adrian, your Doctor Who companion, comes from in one of your <laughs> earlier works? Um, 
I, I, he does come from this. Uh, it could be. I did. I, I, it is the same name. It was in my. It was in my mind. Um, but it could be the same one. Yeah, well, I'll have to bring him into the next one. But but it was. Um, I did actually um, hear on on the news the other day. Actually, it was on uh, that there is a, there is. I mean, it's not that surprising that there is a real town called Old Village called Pennyworth somewhere in England. So, but yeah, that's uh, that is. Uh, it, it, yeah, it wasn't a reference to that in the story, but um, but I think I just. It was just a good name. It seemed to. It seemed to, because it's called. It works yeah. a treat, doesn't it, for the story? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. I just wondered. I just wanted to know if we're dealing with, you know, what in modern media terms would be probably coined a reverse, some sort of world where, a fictional world where all these stories are, are taking place uh, in the same space. Maybe, but not. The, the Adrian the is not there. in the it. Adrian there. is not in it. It's not. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it, he won't be in it at any point. He was. Uh, Tank top wearing fox from that one, yeah. <laughs> the sequel, save it for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Pennyworth Revenge. <laughs> it was very well spotted, the, 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 that, that one, yes. Uh. <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, yeah, it's been lovely talking to you. And congratulations with the book, it's a tremendous piece of work. Thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate that. Thanks again to Patrick for talking to us, and thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.